You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Deborah Robinson. Farmer Christy Walsh was out searching for a lost sheep in an area called Millicent South, near to Clane, County Kildare. Though not far from the large town of Nace, Millicent is better described as a townland. There's no village nearby. The houses are mostly large and spread far apart. It's fields and a golf club. That day, as Christy Walsh searched his field, he decided to check a ditch as sheep are notoriously good at getting themselves into impossible and fatal situations. The ditch was deep, near to eight foot or so. Under some briars and ferns, Mr. Walsh discovered the body of a young woman. The girl was wearing jeans and a yellow t-shirt. The guardie were contacted and a large area around the ditch was cordoned off. An intensive search of the surrounding fields was conducted and Gardie began door-to-door inquiries to find out if anyone in the area had heard or seen anything suspicious or might be able to provide information as to the dead girl's identity. On Wednesday, the 10th of September, the woman was named as 19-year-old Deborah Robinson. She was from the Upper Malone Road in Belfast and had travelled to Dublin on Saturday, the 6th of September. The day before the papers carried Deborah's name, her father, George Robinson, had travelled to Kildare to identify the body. He'd reported Deborah missing to the RUC on Sunday the 7th. At the time, Deborah's mother, Dr Lorna Robinson, was away on holiday in Majorca and was told the awful news by phone after the official identification took place. Deborah had gone to school at Richmond Lodge, followed by the Methodist College for her A-levels. After this, she'd attended a secretarial course, which she took with a language at the College of Business Studies. She was awaiting her final results when she made her fateful journey down to Dublin that day. Deborah, known to friends and family as Bobby, was about to take up her first job as a secretary. Her former head teachers recalled that Deborah was a quiet girl and was very bright. She had spent some of her final years in secondary school engaged in volunteer work, visiting the elderly and hospitals. She was a keen badminton player and enjoyed yoga and squash. A neighbour told reporters that badminton was the only reason they could think of that the 19-year-old might have travelled to Dublin, saying that it was her main interest. George Robinson told the press that he was not sure why Deborah had made the day trip down to the city, but thought it might be for shopping, and that as far as he knew, she had no friends there. On Sunday, the 7th of September, 1980, Dr. John Harbison, the chief state pathologist, performed the post-mortem, and he concluded that Deborah had been killed within 24 hours of leaving her house on Saturday morning. The only visible injuries to her body were bruise marks around her neck. Deborah's shoes and handbag were missing from the scene too. The post-mortem also revealed that before she was killed, Deborah had been brutally raped. Gurdy began to try and piece together Deborah's movements from the Saturday before and also began investigating the possibility that Deborah's death might be connected to the murder of Phyllis Murphy the 22-year-old woman who was killed in the area the year before, covered in episode 68. Hundreds of Gardi were brought in to assist with the continuing searches and questionnaires being carried out in the investigation. Garda sources told the press that there were some similarities between the two cases and that it was possible that Deborah's killer may have been interrupted or frightened off from where Deborah's body had been left before he'd been able to destroy all of her clothing. Gardy asked members of the public to come forward if they had been in the area over the weekend and if they'd perhaps seen a car parked in the vicinity or 
any suspicious behaviour. Any of Deborah's friends who might have information as to what Deborah's plans had been that day were also asked to make contact with either the Gardaí or the RUC in the north. Deborah's father also made an appeal that day, asking for any local people in Kildare who might know what had happened to his daughter to come forward and to help bring Deborah's killer to justice. Gardie learned that three buses had left Belfast from Great Victoria Street on the morning of Saturday the 6th, labelled A, B and C. Passengers on the buses were identified and it was determined that Deborah had travelled on the C bus. She'd been wearing a distinctive jacket which was black, except for bright stripes on the right sleeve, and she was carrying an unusual black hat. The bus that Deborah had travelled on had stopped in Dundalk, about halfway along the journey south from Belfast to Dublin. The break lasted about 15 minutes, and the papers said that other passengers on the buses reported that when it had recommenced its route, Deborah had not gotten back on. Gardy began to look into whether Deborah had met someone in Dundalk, whether by appointment or by chance. Chief Superintendent Jim Murphy from Kildare once again appealed for her friends to come forward if there was anything they might know about why Deborah was taking the trip that day. He also commented that given Deborah's sporty nature, she would have been well capable of putting up a fight had she been suddenly attacked by a stranger but there were no signs of a struggle present on her body, which may have indicated that she'd been killed by someone she knew and trusted. Searches also continued just outside Clane, where Deborah's body was found. The terrain and recent heavy rain meant that there was no trace left by the car that had surely been used to transport Deborah's body out to the field where she was found. But Gardi were hopeful that they might recover further personal items of Deborah's, including her missing clothing. The lead detective on the case said that the murder had not occurred at the spot where Deborah had been found. Her killer had taken time and trouble to attempt to conceal her body after dumping her in the drain. Garda detectives began to circulate pictures of Deborah both in Kildare and in Dundalk to the north. George Robinson revealed that there were people on board the Ulster bus that morning who knew Deborah, and they'd been able to positively identify her, with no doubt in their minds that Deborah had been on the bus. He also said that Deborah was fond of travelling and of going on hill walks and so on, so her father thought that perhaps that was what had brought her to the Dublin area that day, or that maybe she was meeting with someone she had met while on one of her travels. It appeared that Deborah was going to Dublin not to go shopping as he had initially thought, but rather to meet with someone who lived somewhere along the route of the bus, between Dundalk and its destination, as it had become clear that she did not stay on till the city centre. On Friday the 12th of September, there was a break in the case. Gardy revealed that Deborah had actually remained on the Ulster bus service to Dublin until it arrived in Swords, a large town in North County Dublin. After getting off the bus, she had gone to a local pub where she had a coffee. She made a number of calls to a local number from a payphone at the bar. Later, Deborah was seen with a young man. A description of the man was given to police who began looking for him but he presented himself at Swords Garda Station voluntarily. Papers described him as a 25-year-old student, originally from England. Gardy admitted that the focus of their investigation had moved to the Swords area, and inquiries were centred there. They said that they had also benefited from cooperation from the RUC and Scotland Yard in advance of the interview with the young man. The same day, Deborah's funeral was held. The ceremony itself was private, but around 150 people joined the family in Dundonald Cemetery for her burial while prayers were said by Canon Eric Elliot of St. Thomas Parish, Church of Ireland. The young man continued to be held in swords for questioning the following day, with Gardy noting that extensive searches and inquiries continued in an effort to determine the location of Deborah's killing and to get a fuller picture of Deborah's movements the weekend before. 
Appeals continued for members of the public who had seen the girl before her death to come forward to help in this effort. Over the weekend, two further witnesses were also identified. They were a couple, a man and a woman, who had been on the same bus as Deborah to Dublin. They had sat on the seats directly in front of Deborah, and it was understood that they had had a conversation with the 19-year-old. After seeing public appeals for information on the case, the two people had contacted the RUC and went to their local police station to be questioned and to give their statements. There were hopes that perhaps the details of the conversation might shed some light on Deborah's purpose for travelling to Dublin. Searches continued and lines of investigation were followed, while the 25-year-old who was held in the case went home on Sunday the 14th of September. Gardie confirmed that Deborah had met the man and that he'd been questioned at Swords Garda Station. They emphasised the fact that he had come to the Garda Station voluntarily and had not been under arrest. The Belfast Telegraph reported that it was possible Deborah had been travelling to Dublin in order to meet with someone who she'd made contact with via a Lonely Hearts column, but Gardie would not confirm whether the 25-year-old from Swords was this individual. However, Gardie did say that Deborah had met this man on September 6th at a quarter to one, and the two had gone for a walk. They'd got back to Swords Village at around 4pm, and he had then left Deborah at a bus stop, where it was Deborah's intention to get a bus into Dublin City, and then make her way to the Ulster bus terminal, where she'd be able to get her bus back to Belfast. On Wednesday the 17th, Deborah's mother, Dr Lorna Robinson, made her own appeal for information in her daughter's case. She believed that, given Deborah's active nature, it was possible that Deborah had decided to walk into Dublin City that afternoon, rather than wait for a bus. She asked for people who might have seen a girl matching Deborah's description walking towards the city that afternoon to contact Gardie. Dr. Robinson wept as she told reporters that Deborah had won a silver medal in the Duke of Edinburgh Endeavour Awards and that the family had just been notified that Deborah had won joint first prize in Britain for intermediate French shorthand from the Chamber of Commerce in London. The Robinsons had received a letter along with the notification expressing condolences. If Deborah had lived, she would have been invited to receive her prize in London. Deborah's mum also revealed that she had spoken to the man who'd been questioned by Gardie over the previous weekend. Dr Robinson said she knew his name and had spoken to him on the phone. A renewed appeal by Gardie was issued on the 25th of September, 19 days after Deborah was last seen alive. Accompanying the appeal was a new photo of the 19-year-old in the hopes that this would help to jog the memory of witnesses who had seen Deborah in Swords or in Dublin City Centre. Further details also emerged at this time about the man that Deborah had met with in Swords. He was a Cambridge graduate who was in Ireland attending Trinity College to write his thesis for a postgraduate degree on the structure of marriage in Ireland. He and Deborah had had a blind date after they were introduced through a London-based dating agency. The two young people had spent time together that afternoon walking around swords and getting to know one another. A senior Garda officer also told the press, So far, we have come up against a blank wall in our investigation. We hope this new photograph will jog someone's memory. End quote. The following day, the Garda Subaqua unit began searching a stretch of the Grand Canal in County Kildare. The waterway ran only 200 metres or so from the ditch where Deborah's body had been found, and Gardie had not turned up any further physical evidence in the extensive search of the ditch and fields nearby. In the absence of any developments in the case over the next months, Deborah Robinson's killing was mentioned by the press only when other young women went missing or died. First, there was a 20-year-old Donegal nurse, Ingrid Kelly, who had gone missing in October of 1980. She had stayed with a friend in Newcastle, County Kildare, not far from where Deborah's body was recovered, before heading to Dunleary in the hopes of catching a ferry to Britain to see her boyfriend. But she never arrived and it wasn't clear that she had made it onto the boat, 
She had told her friend that if the ferry was full, she would make her own way back to Kildare. The next month, 23-year-old Teresa Gallagher, also from Donegal, was found dead in the bedroom of her flat in South County Dublin. She had been raped and then strangled. Teresa worked at a hotel nearby which provided her accommodation and her flatmate and work colleague had discovered her. Teresa was last seen alive just an hour before when she had left a local disco. There were understandable worries that these three cases were somehow linked. All the women were young, two had connections to Kildare, two were known to have been sexually assaulted and strangled and all three were from Ulster. But no connection between the cases was ever made. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, Best Fiends. That's friends without the R. There's a chill in the air and autumn is finally here, my favourite time of year. It's time to wrap up, grab a festive coffee and relax. That's when you'll find me playing Best Fiends, the five-star rated puzzle game packed with super fun brain challenges and never-ending entertainment. I love taking a little break from chores and work by playing my favourite game. I'm always amazed at how Best Fiends manages to help me de-stress but also keeps my brain working. And this game saved my bacon on a recent flight. It had been so long since I'd travelled that I'd forgotten there's no signal in the air. I played Best Fiends offline and the time flew by. And with Best Fiends, there's always new cute characters to collect or a new level to defeat. Best Fiends has over 5,000 levels to keep you challenged, so you'll never be without something to do. Make Best Fiends one of your cozy autumn activities. It's always fun, never frustrating, and keeps you coming back for more. Download Best Fiends on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This episode is also sponsored by Manscaped. Autumn is in the air, the pumpkins are in the patch, and our friends at Manscaped are here to make sure that you don't carve your pants pumpkins when you're grooming, if you know what I'm saying. Make sure you're keeping things fresh this fall with the leaders in male grooming and their brand new fourth generation performance package. Boys, get ready for a cuffing season like no other. Get ready to take the leap into fall with Manscaped and join the 2 million folks worldwide using Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS. It is time to bundle up with Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0. Inside, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, and their Crop Reviver Toner. If you're looking to cozy up this fall, this trimmer. If you're looking to cozy up this fall, this trimmer is essential. And don't forget that they have that handy LED light so you can see what you're doing in these darker days. It's also handy to keep a lookout for things that go bump in the night. And make sure that you don't turn into a horror story. The Weed Whacker is perfect to safely chop your worst weeds up top in your nose and ear. No chainsaws required. Manscaped's liquid formulations finish things off nicely, making you smell like you've just come in from chopping up some firewood for getting warm and cozy during those Netflix and chill sessions. And of course, Manscaped throws in their two free gifts for their Performance Package 4.0, the Manscaped Boxers and Shed travel bag. Get comfy at home or on the go this season. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped. Make your balls a priority this fall. Choose Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. In December of 1980, three months after her killing, a renewed appeal was made again in Deborah's case. This time, Gurdy gave details of a line of inquiry that was being followed. They revealed that a forensic examination of Deborah's clothing had uncovered a collection of small fibres on her jeans. They were a cotton-polyester mix, unwashed and unworn, and the kind found in a clothing factory which made shirts, ties or underwear. 
Gardie thought it was possible that Deborah had been in a clothing factory or in a car used by someone who had worked in a place like that. On that basis, this new appeal focused on those in the clothing production trade. They asked people working in factories to recall whether they loaned out a vehicle to someone or if anyone had had use of a vehicle owned by a factory and if anyone in those circumstances had been noted to be acting suspiciously in early September. Gurdy also said they believed it was possible that Deborah's killer may have made approaches to other women on their own in the Dublin area and asked for anyone who had been approached like this or who had been sexually assaulted in the city centre to contact them. By the end of 1980, as a result of renewed appeals, Gardy told the press that between 30 and 40 people were to be interviewed and that two suspects had been questioned and ruled out of the case. But their progress in the case, what little there had been, stalled. Nothing more of the investigation into Deborah's killing was heard by the public until May the next year, 1981, when an inquest into her death was opened in Nace. The Robinson family were not informed of the development and had harsh words in the press for the authorities in the Republic when they learned of the move. Dr. Robinson said that they had planned to have both medical and legal representation at any inquest when it was held, but they had only been informed that the inquest had been opened on July 22nd. The Robinsons had been sent a letter from the coroner, Dr. O'Donnell, informing them that another hearing in the matter was to occur on the 24th of July. Lorna Robinson told the Belfast Telegraph, quote, It was extremely discourteous of the authorities to start the inquest without telling my husband or myself. It does not seem to me to be fair and equitable that her parents could not be there to hear the state pathologist's evidence and to challenge it or ask for it to be amplified, end quote. Very little had changed again by the time the one-year anniversary of Deborah's killing came in September of 1981. More details of the investigative steps taken in the previous 12 months were outlined as Gardy admitted that they had no new leads to follow and appeared to have reached a dead end. The police were now sure that Deborah had in fact taken a bus from Swords into the city centre. Gardy also carried out and aired a reconstruction of Deborah's last movements through Swords where a female Gardy dressed in similar clothes. The clip was shown on a precursor to Crimeline called Garda Patrol. Though public response to the broadcast was described as excellent, no new information was uncovered. One Garda told the press, quote, I regret that we are no nearer to solving this murder, which was a particularly brutal one, than we were 12 months ago. Despite every effort being made to track down the person responsible, we have drawn a blank every time, end quote. In the absence of new evidence, the investigation had stalled, and very little was being done on it. It was expected that the inquest into Deborah's death would resume in the following month. But then, on Thursday the 3rd of December, a 28-year-old man was charged with Deborah Robinson's murder at a special sitting of the District Court in Cross Malina, County Mayo. He was named as Richard O'Hara, who was married with three children, and was originally from Belfast. The court was told that he had no fixed address. The murder charge read that Deborah had been killed at an address on East Aaron Street. Evidence of arrest was given by Detective Chief Superintendent John Courtney, the head of the so-called murder squad. O'Hara was remanded in custody. At his next district court hearing on the 10th of December, which occurred in Dublin, O'Hara was granted legal aid. At a further hearing in early January of 1982, the court was told that the investigation into Deborah's death was one of the largest that had ever taken place in the state. Solicitor Mr. Robert Eager, appearing for the DPP, informed the court that the file on the case was not yet complete and that the amount of forensic and technical evidence in the case which had to be dealt with was time-consuming to go through. Mr. Eager said that the file would be completed within a week and then the book of evidence would be prepared. O'Hara's solicitor, Garrett Sheehan, said that they were anxious to receive the book of evidence and for the trial to go ahead as quickly as possible in the case. The state was given more time to prepare. By mid-January, O'Hara and his legal team was back in court, 
this time making an application for bail at the High Court. Mr Justice Finlay, the President of the High Court, heard that the DPP and the Gardaí were opposed to bail in the case. There was a fear that, if allowed out on bail, O'Hara might harm himself. A suicide letter had been found in O'Hara's cell in Mount Joy, and a hypodermic needle and razor blades were found hidden in O'Hara's trousers when he was initially brought to prison. On top of that, during Garda interviews, O'Hara was alleged to have told police that he would never go to trial and he would kill himself before he went to court on a charge of murder. The court was also told that O'Hara had spent seven months in a mental hospital in Dublin beginning in April the year before. The accused had moved around a lot as well. O'Hara had lived in the West and then moved to Dublin where he got married. He had then moved to County Kerry. O'Hara and his legal team told the court that he had been on drugs when he was interviewed by Gardaí, but that he no longer had a drug problem. O'Hara assured the court that if he was allowed out on bail, he would stay in his family home and return to court to stand trial. Mr Justice Finlay adjourned the hearing on the matter in order to allow Mr O'Hara's wife to respond to a request that she state in an affidavit that she would allow O'Hara to return home to his family should bail be granted. However, when the court resumed on Friday the 29th of January, O'Hara's lawyer informed Mr Justice Finlay that he was withdrawing the application and they asked that the case be dealt with as a priority. They wanted a quick trial. And that was what they got. On Monday the 22nd of March, Richard O'Hara's trial began in the Central Criminal Court in Dublin before Mr Justice Finlay and a jury of nine men and three women. Paul Carney, who we're more used to hearing from in rulings and judgments, was acting as senior counsel for the state in this case, and he gave the opening speech. Paul Carney outlined that the jury would hear Richard O'Hara had met Deborah Robinson in Dublin city centre on the 6th of September 1980. The barrister continued explaining that Deborah had travelled to Dublin to go on a blind date with a different man whom she'd met in swords, Edmund Law and afterwards she'd gone into the city to make her way back home. It was alleged that O'Hara had by chance met Deborah in Dublin and had then attacked, sexually assaulted and killed Deborah in the clothing factory where he worked. Later he had driven her body to a field in County Kildare where she was discovered. It was again by chance that Deborah's body had been located so quickly. Mr Carney did inform the jury, however, that O'Hara would be telling a very different version of events. Going into further details, Mr Carney said that that Saturday evening while walking along Parnell Square, O'Hara had come upon Deborah. The defendant had been drinking and had smoked some cannabis. O'Hara had somehow persuaded the teenager to go with him to the Jeanette factory, his place of employment, where he was due to set the alarm Saturday evening. Paul Carney said it would be for the jury to decide what had actually happened, though it was Carney's assertion that they would no doubt find O'Hara guilty of Deborah's cruel and violent death. Evidence in the case against Richard O'Hara began when Deborah's father, George Robinson, told the court that on the weekend in question, his wife was on holiday to recover from an illness. Deborah had said she was going to Dublin that Saturday and he'd said goodbye to her in the family home at about 8am. Deborah had asked him how she looked. George recalled he told Deborah she looked very smart. When Deborah hadn't returned that evening, Mr Robinson said he wasn't too worried. Before she'd left, he told her that he'd be away the following day and that she might think about staying the night in Dublin. At the time, Deborah had said she was sure she was coming home on Saturday but he just thought it was possible she had changed her mind. By Sunday evening, Deborah still wasn't home though. He became very worried and rang both Ulster bus and the trains. At 11pm, he rang the RUC and with still no sign of Deborah on Monday morning, he went to the police station to give Deborah's description and a photo, followed by a trip to the Ulster bus depot to do the same. The following afternoon, at 4pm, George said he'd been notified by local officers that the Gardaí had recovered the body of a young woman, matching Deborah's description. 
Mr. Robinson made his way to Nace. He had not been aware that Deborah had used a dating service or that she was meeting someone from this service in Dublin on Saturday the 6th. Then Ms. Elizabeth Reed told the court that she had been a passenger on an Ulster bus service to Dublin on the 6th of September and she'd seen Deborah sitting at the back of one of the coaches. She knew it was Deborah because she'd worked with the girl for a period of a week in the past. They'd had coffee together when the bus stopped in Dundalk. Ms. Reed said she didn't see Deborah after she'd boarded her bus again to resume the journey to Dublin. Gerard Rogan, the driver of the Ulster bus service to Dublin that day, recalled being approached by a young woman passenger while he was driving. She had thought that Swords was on the far side of Dublin City, but just after passing Balbriggan, when she realised she was close to the town, she'd come up to Mr. Rogan and asked if it was possible for her to be let out there. She wasn't sure where in Swords she needed to be dropped, and so Mr. Rogan left her on the main street, with the driver telling her that the bus home for her would leave from Parnell Square at half six, as the bus would not go through Swords on its return journey. Mr. Rogan had recalled the girl that evening when he was making the drive back and told the court that he'd actually held the bus for 15 minutes to see if she would arrive. She didn't, though, and he made the trip back north. Edmund Law, Deborah's blind date from the day of her death, then gave evidence. He said he had signed up for a service called Dateline, described as a computer dating service while living in England, and he'd updated his address when he moved to Ireland to carry out research. In August of 1980, he got a printout via the service of Deborah's name and phone number, and they subsequently made arrangements to meet. Edmund told the court that he'd given Deborah his description when she called after alighting from the bus in Swords, and he'd told her to stay at the payphone, that he'd come and meet her. After he'd picked her up, Edmund walked Deborah back to his flat at the old vicarage in Swords, an historical stone building across the road from the beautiful St. Columba's Church of Ireland, built on the site of an old monastery, said to have been established by St. Colum Kill in 560. It wasn't far from the River Valley Park, where the small Ward River, also known locally as the Jacko, made its way through the steep valley. Edmund had shown Deborah around his flat and then brought out some photo albums to show her. He offered her tea, but she declined, and then they went into his bedroom to look at holiday pictures. The two kissed then for a bit, but decided that they'd better stop, as they'd only just met. Then they sat in the garden talking for a while before Edmund showed Deborah around Swords, showing her the round tower at the church and Swords Castle. After this, they went back to the flat and Edmund showed Deborah the view he had of the imposing old stone structures he had from his bedroom window and he put his arms around her and kissed her. But by then it was time for Deborah to leave. Edmund walked Deborah to a bus stop which would bring her to the city and she said she would take the trip to Dublin on her own, despite the young man's offer to show her some of the sights in the city centre. Edmund left Deborah at the bus stop at a quarter to four, after the two had made plans to meet again in two weeks, this time in Belfast. On cross-examination, Mr Law said he could not recall the exact number of printouts he'd received via dateline, maybe four or five in the space of six months. He said he led the normal life of a student while at Cambridge and he'd worked very hard at his degree. He had not contacted all of the names he'd been given by the dating service. Those he did contact, Mr Law said, he had met up with, but on each occasion they'd only met once. He said that it was a, quote, mixture of both when asked whether it was him or the women who ultimately weren't interested in pursuing further meetings. Mr. Law told Paddy McEntee, who was acting for the defence, that he had also put an ad in In Dublin magazine after moving to Ireland. In it, he had described himself as looking to meet someone with a view to marriage and that he was reserved and had a hard time making friends. Edmund said he got about six responses to this too and he'd met two of the women from the ad, one on Sunday the 7th of September 1980 and the other the following Thursday. Both came to meet him in swords. Edmund had in fact begun making his calls on the evening of the 6th, after Deborah had left him. 
The woman he met on Sunday the 7th had come over after Mr. Law had gone to church. She'd come to the flat that afternoon and stayed there with him until just after midnight. Edmund told Mr. McEntee that he didn't know if anyone had seen him and Deborah together and he hadn't asked the couple who lived in the old vicarage or his landlord if they'd seen the couple together. Deborah had also been seen on the bus into town by a number of people. She was wearing a distinctive hat and had stood out a bit. A nun, Sister Cyprian McGurk, said that she had been struck by Deborah's sad expression. Sister Cyprian had boarded the number 41 bus at the Viscount pub on the Swords Road near to Whitehall at 5.25pm and she'd sat next to Deborah, who she initially thought was wearing a uniform due to the distinctive bowler-type hat that Deborah had on. The court was told that the number 41 bus got into town at half past five and Deborah had then made her way to Parnell Square where she was planning to board the half-past-six Ulster bus service back home. The farmer who found Deborah's body explained to the court that on Saturday the 6th, while driving his sheep, a lamb had fallen into a deep-cut drain in his field. He went after it and, while lying on his stomach trying to reach the lamb, he saw what he thought was a large doll, partially covered with thick brush. He called his daughter and they realised that what they'd stumbled upon was in fact the body of a young woman. There was no way to see into the ditch from the road and field and had the farmer not needed to retrieve his lamb, he would not have seen Deborah's body. Then Mr. Miles McGrath described how he had come upon Mr. Walsh while driving near Clane. Mr. Walsh was standing at the road waving him down and when the witness stopped, he was told that a body had been found. Mr. McGrath then drove to the nearest house and contacted local guardie. After this testimony, details were given by the Garda who took Mr. McGrath's call and by a sergeant who began the search for physical evidence in and around where Deborah had been found. On the second day of evidence in the case, the state pathologist, Dr. John Harbison, told the court that he had visited the scene and then carried out the post-mortem examination on Deborah's body in Nace General Hospital. Dr. Harbison described climbing down into the ditch for his initial inspection, and then, with the help of a ballistic sergeant, the pathologist himself had lifted Deborah's body from the culvert. The following day, Sunday, Dr. Harbison had performed the post-mortem. He gave evidence that Deborah had died of asphyxiation due to manual strangulation and said that he had concluded this from internal bruising he'd noted around Deborah's neck. There was no fracture in her neck, but Harbison said that this could be accounted for given Deborah's young age, 19, with Dr. Harbison going on to explain that at this stage, the neck structure was still quite flexible. He'd noted that there were three bruises on Deborah's left arm and said that they were either defensive in nature or from where she had been grasped by someone. Harbison also told the jury that he had determined that Deborah had been raped, noting trauma to her genitals, including a damaged hymen. The pathologist said that, in his opinion, Deborah had been a quote-unquote virgin until this damage was inflicted. Deborah also had injuries to the left side of her face and to both the front and back of her head. Paddy McEntee for the defence cross-examined Dr Harbison closely. McEntee asked if it was possible that the injuries to Deborah's genitals were due to, quote, vigorous but consensual activity, end quote. Harbison responded that he thought it was unlikely that a young woman, a woman that he had concluded was inexperienced with penetrative intercourse, would have allowed those kind of injuries to occur. But the pathologist conceded that he couldn't exclude the scenario completely. In response to further questions from Mr. McEntee, Dr. Harbison also said that, again, it was possible that Deborah's injuries to her head and neck may have been the result of a fall at the time of her death and that there could have been a loss of consciousness, causing a collapse before the point of death. The following day, Dr. Harbison's evidence continued. He was recalled to the stand to address a number of questions and clarifications that the foreman of the jury had for him regarding his evidence. 
They wanted to know whether Deborah had died of one continuous application of pressure to her neck or if there had been a series of compressions. Harbison said he couldn't be specific in that regard. There was no way to know. The jury also asked the pathologist if he knew how long it had taken for death to occur. Harbison said that in various tests, unconsciousness could occur within 30 seconds and that death would have occurred in this case any time after that loss of consciousness and up to a period of four minutes. The jury heard that Dr. Harbison's opinion was that Deborah had been attacked from the front due to an absence of bruising around the back of Deborah's neck. This was the scenario which was quote-unquote more likely, he said. Harbison also testified that it was improbable that the injuries to Deborah's back and forehead were sustained during unconsciousness, in a scenario where Deborah had become unconscious and then fallen and been hurt, given that the injuries were on both sides of her body. The pathologist went on to address the issue of the level of pain that one might feel in what were delicately termed moments of passion. He said that pain could certainly be reduced in such circumstances, but he didn't think Deborah would have allowed the kind of injuries that might be seen in vigorous or rough intercourse. There was also no way for him to know how much time might have elapsed between various injuries on Deborah's body, such as to her genitalia and the time of death. All he could say was that there was no healing apparent. Paddy McEntee also asked Dr. Harbison to address the possibility of death caused by vagal inhibition in this case. Vagal inhibition is when pressure is applied to the vagus nerve located along the side of the neck, which can cause the heart to stop suddenly. The state pathologist told the court that vagal inhibition is a difficult diagnosis to make, but he thought that it was improbable in this case, as it was very rare in his experience. He had come across it only four or five times as opposed to dealing with 40 or 50 cases of manual strangulation. In one case where he had determined cause of death as vagal inhibition involved a cyclist who had died suddenly when he was struck across the neck with a branch. Harbison said that it was his opinion that vagal inhibition had not occurred in Deborah's case, but not only due to the rarity of it. Dr. Harbison said that the bruising on Deborah's neck was consistent with sustained pressure being exerted there. On Friday the 26th of March, after a period of legal argument regarding the admissibility of evidence, the court was read a number of statements given by Richard O'Hara to Gardee. Detective Sergeant Thomas Dunn had spoken to O'Hara in Castle Bar Garda Station and had informed O'Hara that he did not have to answer questions, that he was free to go, and had cautioned him. The detective sergeant had then told O'Hara that he wanted to question him about the death of Deborah Robinson. O'Hara had agreed to be interviewed. In this interview, Richard O'Hara said that on the 6th of September, he had left work in the clothing factory in East Aaron Street at half past 12 in the afternoon. He'd gone back to the flat that he shared nearby with his young family, but he'd had an argument with his wife and left again shortly after. O'Hara had then made his way to a pub in Sheriff Street and then he went to the cinema. The defendant said he didn't stay for the whole film, however, and he'd left there at around five o'clock. O'Hara made the short walk then to Henry Street, where he went to the large department store, Roach's Stores, in the hopes of seeing his wife, but she wasn't there. O'Hara continued on to another pub and had two drinks there before he decided to head home. But in Parnell Street, O'Hara told the guardie he'd met a girl, and they'd talked for a while. He'd asked the girl if she wanted a smoke, but she'd told him that she didn't touch them. The girl had continued walking and talking with him and they headed back to the clothing factory on East Aaron Street. O'Hara said he'd brought Deborah there as he set the building's alarm every Saturday evening. Later, Roisin Ingle would write in the Irish Times that O'Hara had told Deborah that he was driving to Belfast and offered her a lift back home. This, the journalist said, was the reason that Deborah had agreed to walk with him, but instead of taking her to his van, O'Hara had brought her to the factory where he worked. The truth may never be known, but for whatever reason, Deborah had gone with O'Hara back to his place of employment. 
O'Hara told Gardy that he'd shown Deborah around the factory after learning that she was to take up a job as a secretary with the Ulster Weaving Company in the near future. After this, the two of them had sat in the canteen and chatted, and then they'd gone into the cutting room. There, according to O'Hara, they'd had consensual sex. During intercourse, O'Hara said Deborah made comments complaining of his performance. He had gotten angry, saying he had felt quote-unquote lousy when Deborah said she had felt nothing while having sex, and his anger was such that he'd put his hands around her neck. But after that, they'd begun chatting again. Then, Deborah had begun to worry about getting home. She had realised she'd missed her bus, and it was past 7pm. O'Hara said he'd rung CIE to inquire about the Ulster bus service for her but he was told that it was a separate company and they had no information. Meanwhile, Deborah was becoming more and more upset. In the hallway to the front of the factory, O'Hara said he had covered Deborah's mouth with his hands as she was yelling and giving out about missing her bus, and then he'd put his hands around her neck again and squeezed. This time she'd fallen to the ground, and O'Hara said he'd made attempts to revive her. He'd put water on her face, but he quickly realised that she was dead. O'Hara told Gardy that he had then lifted Deborah back into the cutting room and left her there. He went on a walk and then went home. The next day he went back to the factory, checked again that Deborah was dead and hired a van from a rental place in nearby O'Connell Street. He put Deborah's body into the back of a white hiace and drove out to the Naistool carriageway, the N7. He'd simply followed the flow of traffic out of the city. Eventually, he'd turned off the main road and, at some stage, he found the ditch. He'd lowered Deborah into it late on Sunday afternoon, while it was still light. The next day, Deborah's body had been found. Then O'Hara recounted to Gardy that he had driven back to Dublin and went to drop off the van at the hire company. But before he left it, he realised some of Deborah's belongings were still in the back of the van. So he wrapped these in a newspaper and made the brief walk over to Summer Hill, where he threw them into the back of some abandoned flats. O'Hara told Detective Sergeant Dunn that he had confessed what he had done to a priest a week after Deborah's death. The priest had told him he had to go to the Gardaí, and O'Hara said he had actually gone to Fitzgibbon Street Station and walked inside, but he'd left without speaking to anyone. The court then heard testimony from Sergeant Patrick McCool, who had spoken to O'Hara at Castlebar Station in early December. O'Hara had outlined the same story as before. After this, another employee, another employee, at the clothing factory, the financial controller, Mr Patrick Flood, told the court that he had been in a pub in Dublin city centre on the 6th of September. He had needed petrol for his car, but he was having trouble finding a place to fill up. He decided to drive towards the factory and to wait in a pub until he could go to a nearby garage. While he was there, Richard O'Hara had put his head in the door and asked if the witness needed access to the factory as he'd seen the car parked outside. O'Hara added that he'd come by the factory that evening as the guards had rang him and said that there was a window open. But Mr Flood had told the defendant no, he didn't need access to the factory that night. This interaction had occurred in the hour and a half that Patrick Flood had been in the pub that evening. He'd been there sometime between half past five and seven. Next, a forensic scientist, Dr. Timothy Creedon, told the court that he had found a large number of short pieces of yarn and bundles of fibres on Deborah's clothing. He had matched these to cuttings taken from the clothing factory where O'Hara worked. In his search for matching fibres, Dr. Creedon had visited between 10 and 15 different factories. Sample threads were taken from every clothing factory in counties Kildare, Meath and Dublin. It took 11 months to match the thread to the factory on Arran Street. Dr. Creedon continued that a semen sample had been acquired from a swab of Deborah's body. The sample was analysed and returned a blood type that was only present in 19% of the population in Ireland. The male employees at the Jeanette clothing factory all had samples taken, and three of them had blood types which matched that found on Deborah's body. 
Further forensic evidence included a blood sample that had been taken from O'Hara while he was in the Central Mental Hospital, which was, again, found to match the blood group of the semen sample taken during post-mortem. The jury was told that when Gardee had eventually confronted O'Hara with this information, he had confessed. Closing statements began in the case on Monday the 29th of March. Paul Carney, for the state, said that O'Hara had made not one but three statements admitting the killing of Deborah Robinson. These statements were supported by physical and forensic evidence. Deborah had been found just as O'Hara had described and fibres on her clothing put her in the clothing factory. Mr. Carney pointed out that the only area that O'Hara's statements had varied from the physical evidence in the case was in the defendant's assertion that sexual activity had been consensual. He continued, quote, My suggestion is that while the accused was prepared in three statements to admit to murder, he ran away from the shameful admission of forceful intercourse with a 19-year-old girl, end quote. The prosecuting counsel went on to point out that there were, according to O'Hara himself, two instances where he'd put his hands around Deborah's neck. This, Mr. Carney argued, meant that there could be no question of accident, sudden impulse or provocation in the case. On top of that, the severe bruising to Deborah's neck meant that there must have been a considerable amount of pressure put on her. Mr. Carney also referenced the lengthy cross-examination of Edmund Law, the man that Deborah had met in Swords, saying that the purpose of this thorough questioning had been to prompt the jury to speculate. But Carney said they had to look at the evidence before them, and all the evidence pointed to the defendant's guilt. After examining what had been put before the court, Carney asserted, the jury would find Richard O'Hara guilty. The jury was sent out to begin deliberations, and after six hours, they returned with a unanimous verdict. They had indeed found Richard O'Hara guilty of the murder of Deborah Robinson. O'Hara had remained motionless during the sentencing. His wife had been at the proceedings throughout, but reporters noted that she had left the courtroom before the verdict was announced. When proceedings concluded, Deborah's father, George, spoke to the press from the steps of the court. He said that the family was pleased with the result and indicated that they were considering taking a civil action against O'Hara, similar to what had been done by one of the victim's families in the Yorkshire Ripper case. Mr. Robinson said that the family felt that O'Hara had defamed Deborah when he said that the two had had consensual sex. The Robinson family were understandably upset by the idea of this, telling the press that Deborah had had a number of boyfriends in the past, but according to the evidence heard in court presented by John Harbison, she had been a quote-unquote virgin at the time of her death. Mr. Robinson said it was unbelievable that Deborah would choose to sleep with some random man she met in town over the various boys she'd had more serious relationships with over the years. After the trial concluded, the press reported that Richard O'Hara had been arrested seven months after Deborah's death, after he had not returned a car he had hired during his move to County Kerry. O'Hara had been remanded in custody after the alleged theft, and shortly after that, he'd been transferred to the Central Mental Hospital in Dublin for treatment for a drug problem. Eventually, he was released from Dundrum, but not long after that, he was arrested again, this time on a charge of housebreaking in County Mayo. It was then that detectives from the murder squad had spoken to him and asked him about Deborah's killing and that O'Hara had confessed. Richard O'Hara was from Belfast and in his teens he'd signed up to serve in the British Army. He served on the Falls Road in the early 70s with the Royal Green Jackets and due to this his family no longer spoke to him. After a number of years he refused a fourth tour of duty and he was discharged. As a civilian, the IRA quote-unquote lifted him, fearing that he was a spy in the Catholic community on behalf of the security forces, and they told O'Hara to leave Ulster, which he did. He moved to England. 
And as it turned out, O'Hara had run afoul of the law in England too. In December of 1975, O'Hara had served two years in jail when he pled guilty to attempting to rob a woman he had given a lift to near Newry. He had also received a suspended sentence and was ordered to undergo treatment for drug and alcohol dependence when he was before a court in Winchester for housebreaking and assaulting a 15-year-old girl. But after his conviction for murder in Ireland, it was also revealed that Deborah Robinson's death was not the first that O'Hara had been directly involved with. While working for a security firm in England in 1974, O'Hara had been charged with the abduction of a nine-year-old girl, Sharon Sparks, in Lancashire. Sharon had been making her way home on the 11th of September 1974 and had been at a bus stop near Rochdale. But her body was later recovered on the side of the road some distance away and a police investigation was launched. The head investigator, Detective Chief Superintendent Thomas Butcher, appealed for the person responsible for Sharon's death to come forward, telling the press that the incident might have been an accident, but that murder had not been ruled out. Forensic evidence and witness statements led police to track down a blue Ford Escort, which was discovered to be owned by Richard O'Hara. Initially, he had denied that he had ever seen the young girl or that Sharon had been in his car. But then he confessed that he had, in fact, offered her a lift home. O'Hara said he'd seen Sharon thumbing for a lift, and he'd pulled over to tell her she shouldn't be doing that. But despite this apparent need to warn her off hitchhiking, O'Hara then told her to jump in his car and he would bring her home. But, he said, after being in the car and chatting with him for a while, Sharon had panicked when they turned down a dark road. O'Hara told Manchester police, that he was going 50 to 60 miles an hour at the time, and he immediately began looking for a place to pull over. He'd just spotted a lay-by and was preparing to stop when Sharon opened the car door. O'Hara told police he'd looked to the passenger seat and Sharon simply wasn't there anymore. In his statement, Richard O'Hara described having pulled over and seeing nothing, so he decided to leave. As he went to pull away, O'Hara said that the steering wheel had wobbled and it felt as if he'd run over something. He got out and found Sharon's body under his car. After finding her, O'Hara claimed he'd tried to use a radio to summon help, but it wasn't working. He'd then lifted Sharon to try and put her over a wall at the side of the road, but then he thought he heard her moaning, so he'd left her on the grass verge. O'Hara insisted he'd checked for a heartbeat and found nothing. After this, he'd panicked and left the scene. According to him, it was an awful accident and O'Hara said that if he'd found that Sharon was alive, he wouldn't have left her there. An inquest into Sharon Sparks' death was held in January of 1975 and the jury there made a finding that Sharon's death had been accidental. Members of Sharon's family were present at the reading of the verdict and had shouted, yelling rubbish, when the finding was read out. But given this result, charges against O'Hara were dropped, on the advice of the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, the Director of Public Prosecutions. However, after Richard O'Hara's conviction for the murder of Deborah Robinson, the Chief Superintendent for the Greater Manchester Police, Thomas Butcher, resubmitted the file in relation to Sharon's death to the Crown Prosecution Services. This, Butcher said, was because of the evidence offered against O'Hara in his trial in Dublin. In September of 1996, Richard O'Hara sent his lawyers to the High Court. He wanted to challenge the most recent decision in his case, which was taken by the Sentence Review Group, who had refused to recommend temporary release for him. He wanted leave to appeal that decision and he also wanted declarations that he was entitled to legal representation, that he was entitled to both legal representation and copies of all the documents the sentencing review group had looked at for his application. Applications for his release had previously been refused in 1990, 1992 and 1995. By that point, O'Hara had served 15 years for Deborah's murder. In his affidavit for the application, O'Hara pointed out that the average life sentence at the time in Ireland was 11 years. He went on to say that he had established a relationship with a woman outside of prison 
and he wanted to marry her when he was released. He also had offers of employment he could take up if release was granted. O'Hara asserted that he was not a threat to the community, that he deeply regretted his actions, that he was a model prisoner and that he had been punished adequately. The High Court heard that the Sentencing Review Group had told the Minister for Justice that they would not be recommending release because of O'Hara's failure to engage in counselling as part of the therapeutic services available to prisoners serving life sentences. The High Court rejected his application, saying that as temporary release was a privilege, there were no rights to it. George Robinson was contacted by the press after the hearing and he said he was surprised but pleased that O'Hara was still in prison. Lorna Robinson had died three years before from cancer and George said that O'Hara had totally ruined their lives. He continued, quote, He got what he deserved, but my thoughts on him are neutral now. I do not feel anything about him. I don't want to hear any more about him, end quote. It wouldn't be until early in 2009 that Richard O'Hara finally succeeded in his applications for release and was allowed out on licence. By that stage, he was 55 years old. Sunday Life from the Belfast Telegraph reported that O'Hara had moved back to Belfast and had gotten married. The paper later learned that the woman O'Hara had married was a prominent member of a church community and that they had met after O'Hara was granted day releases in 2002. He'd been able to then move to supervised accommodation overseen by Church of Ireland clergy in the north and the couple had married in 2004. In 2015, though, O'Hara had his life sentence recalled and he found himself behind bars again, this time in Magaberry Prison in Lisburn, Northern Ireland. The family of Sharon Sparks, particularly her younger sister Tanya, continue to campaign for charges to be brought in Sharon's case, convinced that O'Hara should be held legally responsible for the nine-year-old's death. Tanya said that after Sharon died, the whole town had been affected and everyone was talking about it, but in their own home very little was said and she hadn't really understood what had happened until years later as she entered adolescence. Her sister's death had had a huge impact on her life and affected her deeply as she grew into adulthood. Tanya said she still thinks about Sharon nearly every day. She told the Manchester Evening News in 2018 that they wanted justice for Sharon and answers as to what exactly had happened to her. Tanya continued, quote, If he had not been allowed to walk free, Deborah Robinson would be alive today. That tragedy could have been avoided. Why was that allowed to happen? That's what I can't get my head around. He should face justice for what he did. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to the author Ellen Barnes, Owen Donovan, S.M., Linda Cosgrave, Anna Valencia, Carrie Morrissey, Jeremy Alcorn, Liz Smith, Gwen Stackler, Maria Nolan, Lara Yeager, and Terry Chastain. Thanks so much to each and every one of you for signing up and to those of you who continue to support the show. It is hugely important to keep Mens Rea going and along with my undying love for helping out, you get those ad-free and bonus episodes as well as Nifty March. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash Mens Pod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, BetterHelp and Best Fiends. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song, The Dance Begins, by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time. Don't do anything I wouldn't do.
where the small Ward River, also known locally as the Jacko, made its way through the steep valley, and where the author was once launched down said hills in her pram and directly into the thankfully shallow but chilly water by errant older sisters. Let's see if they still listen, shall we? Ugh, I'm cutting this. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. <laughs>